0: Please adjust your volume control. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You are seated in the Einstein Planetarium of the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum. The circular room is lit dimly. Above us, a curved white ceiling, like an overturned cereal bowl. In the center of the room is the Zeiss Planetarium instrument, a 16-foot-long, dumbbell-shaped, rotating collection of lenses, optics, and electronics. Resembling an oversized ant, it weighs more than 4,000 pounds. As lights fade, panoramic views of Washington, D.C. appear on the dome ceiling. Views are seen from the back seat of a car through the windshield. A man at left, a woman at right.
1: Okay, now, where's the planetarium? In the
0: Smithsonian. Okay. Uh, which Smithsonian would that be? The National Air and Space Museum. Where's that? On the mall.
1: We came all the way to Washington to visit a mall. Not a mall, the mall. Okay, honey, which way?
0: I think you need to cross Pennsylvania Avenue. No, 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 no. was Independence Avenue. No,
2: it's
1: at Pennsylvania.
0: Twinkling stars in a moonlit sky above an open ocean which circles us at the horizon, the bottom ledge of the dome ceiling. A sailing vessel balances on the horizon.
2: To know where you are and how to get where you're going, a daunting challenge. But in the sky are beacons that can help you find the way.
0: Titles, and a star to steer her by, narrated by Sir Alec Guinness. A partial panoramic scene of flat earth appears
2: with animated water running off both sides. When sailors ventured far from the shore, they feared many things.
0: Lightning, blizzard and mermaids. As it reaches the waterfall, it continues over the edge without falling.
2: Falling off the Earth's edge was not among them. Everyone knew Earth is round. The
0: boat pauses in track. Lines are drawn from a lighthouse and a mountain top intersecting at the boat.
2: What sailors feared most was getting lost. Along the coast, a navigator could use landmarks to fix a ship's position. A coastal
0: landscape, the land dissolves away, leaving just the boat in ocean. At sea,
2: landmarks are gone.
0: The boat sails to the right and
2: fades. Leaving only the stars. But stars, unlike landmarks, move. The sky moves, or so
0: it appears, caused by the rotation of the Earth. In compressed time, the stars, moon, and sun appear to shift position as a 24-hour day passes.
2: In greatly accelerated time, we see that as Earth spins, stars rise in the east, reach their high points due south, and set in the west.
0: The word East is in white block letters at the horizon in front of us. The word West at the horizon behind us.
2: Even the moon and sun are carried along.
0: A faint glow is on the horizon followed by the rising of our sun
2: and then the moon. But in the north, the stars stay up. In their midst, one that hardly moves. Polaris, the North Star, lies almost directly atop Earth's North Pole. The whole sky pivots around it.
0: To the left, North is labeled, and an arrow points to a dim star. The sky fills with clouds obscuring the stars. A rotating graphic illustrates the rotation of the Earth in
2: relation to Polaris. You can find Polaris by tracing a line from the pointer stars of the Big Dipper. Once you've found it, use it to help figure your location. Polaris' height above the horizon tells us how far north of the equator we are. A moment ago, we were in Washington.
0: The clouds evaporate and the stars are visible again.
2: Where are we now? Look for Polaris. The arrow pointer is at Polaris, directly overhead. There it is, straight overhead. If Polaris lies above Earth's axis, where must we be? Did you guess the North Pole? Stars neither rise nor set here. try again.
0: The sky fills with clouds again, obscuring the stars. The Zeiss star instrument is faintly illuminated.
2: Now where's Polaris? The arrow is at the horizon to your left indicating north. Having some trouble? Here it is, on the horizon. We are on Earth's equator, where all stars rise and set. Video of our blue Earth rotating right beneath a grid of latitude and longitude lines. Before celebrating your navigational skill, remember the equator is a circle nearly 25,000 miles around. We could be anywhere on it. Polaris shows our latitude, our distance north of the equator, but not our longitude, how far east or west we are. Scaled images of a pencil, flagpole, and the Washington Monument in turn appear. As we travel north, Polaris climbs the sky.
0: They are sandwiched between Horizon and Polaris.
2: Are we home yet? How high is Polaris? As high as a pencil, a flagpole, A tower? Any answer could be right. We need to measure angles, not height. A side
0: view showing all three objects on an angle. A scale marks altitude in
2: degrees. Polaris is 20 degrees up. So we are at 20 degrees north latitude, about halfway between the equator and the latitude of Washington, DC. The scale fades, clouds reappear. The real sky has no engraved altitude scale. So over the centuries, mariners developed simple tools to gauge angles.
0: The clouds fade. The starry sky appears to rotate.
2: Polaris now? You'll never find it. We are far into the southern hemisphere, near Antarctica. The South Pole Star? There is none. Navigators down under must work a lot harder.
0: Title, July 13, 1915 panorama of a moonlit arctic ice flow is at the edge of the horizon its 360 degree image surrounds us a drawing
1: of a sailing ship appears the ship can't live in this skipper Shackleton told me it may be a few months or only weeks or days what the ice gets the ice keeps
0: the ship in ice flow fade, replaced by an all-dome map of Antarctica and a video of an actual sailing ship, a sailor at the top of its mast.
2: Frank Worsley, commanding the Endurance, the ship conveying the British Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition, heard this grim prediction from the expedition's leader, Ernest Shackleton. It set sail for Antarctica in December 1914 and were soon jammed in the ice.
0: Montage of still images, Shackleton, the Endurance, encased in ice, men chip at the ice pack.
2: After six months, it was crushing the ship. Thus began a heroic saga in which survival would depend upon accurate navigation.
0: A 35 foot black and white still image of the Endurance being crushed by the
1: ice. Three months later, the Endurance got the whole force of the pack ice. Each man knew it was the end of the ship. The aurora of the southern lights glows, scenes of the ship's destruction and abandonment. We had food for four weeks, nothing to keep out the biting cold, save linen so thin we could see the moon through it. We had to sleep on the ice, so that the warmth in our bodies would melt it and cause us to lie in pools of water. On the horizon, a desolate ice scape panorama. In the distance, the endurance, a lone light flickers on its deck. In the Endurance we had an electric light, and all night long, while the ship was being crushed, that little light burned steadily. Then with the snapping of the last beam, there was a reverberating crash. The light flickered and went out. The polar ice had won.
0: Antarctic maps circa 1910.
2: Shackleton's goal was to survey Antarctica, the last unmapped continent. At the time, maps of southern stars were better than maps of Antarctica.
0: Images of animals and men inhabit the sky.
2: Not so long ago, sky maps were more reliable than almost any Earth map. The line drawings intersect star points. For to survey Earth, one had to travel and travelers were often mistaken about where they were. North of the equator, latitude could be measured using the North Star, but not longitude. With a
0: grid illuminated, an illustration of Washington, D.C. is above us over a faint blue outline of the United
2: States. Because Earth rotates 15 degrees per hour, the stars over Washington at 7 o'clock become the stars over San Francisco three hours later. San Francisco landmarks. Unless you know what time it is, you can't tell from the stars whether you're in Washington or San Francisco or anywhere at the same latitude. The obvious solution is to carry a clock. But clocks, centuries ago, were not built to travel, nor were they accurate enough.
0: Above us and to the left, a sailing vessel appears moving right.
2: Accuracy is essential. An error of just two degrees engaging the North Star's altitude could mean arriving in New York when you meant to go to Washington. An inaccurate clock makes things worse, for longitude errors tend to grow. If your clock is off by just a minute, your longitude will be off by 10 or 15 miles. Each day, you'll add another error. After a week, you could be 100 miles or more off course, and miss your destination entirely.
0: Moving graphic of a ship in the Atlantic, a path is plotted to Washington and one to New York.
2: Lacking accurate clocks, navigators reckoned their positions as best they could by estimating their speed through the water and charting their progress hour by hour. Speed was gauged by tossing a log overboard. As knotted rope paid out, the navigator counted seconds. The ship's calculated speed in knots was recorded in the logbook. The A navigator could then deduce his position hour by hour. Such dead reckoning could not be trusted. Winds and ocean currents could push a vessel off the desired course without the navigator's knowledge. To avoid getting lost, some mariners literally went to great lengths. They'd sail north or south to the right latitude, then east or west until landfall.
0: Graphic of a shipwreck, a vessel floundering in heavy fog.
2: Sometimes even these measures fail to prevent disaster. Among the worst, the shipwrecking of a British naval squadron in the fog off the southwest tip of England in 1707. Four vessels and 2,000 lives were lost. A clock that could travel desperately needed so that longitude could be measured at sea.
0: On the horizon, a panorama of Padua, Italy, followed by a video of the planet Jupiter as seen
2: through a telescope. The four large moons orbiting Jupiter, discovered by Galileo, became such a clock. Their future positions, hour by hour, could be mathematically predicted. With a telescope, one could calculate the time if Jupiter was visible. This partly solved the longitude problem for surveyors on land.
0: The full night sky surrounds us as seen from the deck of a sailing vessel gently rocking in the sea.
2: But at sea, Jupiter was no help. Even when it was visible, no one could hold a telescope steadily enough. Another kind of sky clock was needed, something that moves independent of the stars. Let's look for one by doing the impossible, stopping Earth's rotation. The sky in motion appears to slow. The sun
0: is at our right and creeps slowly to the left, west to east, along a grid and against background
2: stars. As Earth continues to circle the sun, we discover that the sun has all along being creeping west to east against the stars. We didn't notice it before because it's so slow. Too slow, alas, for navigators who need time accurate to the second. A white ball of light glides toward the horizon. What about planets? They too move predictably, but are still too slow. one hope remains. The moon appears. In the moon, we find a usable clock. To read time from this clock, we must precisely pinpoint the moon's location against the stars, then compare its observed position to predicted positions for various times. Still images of the Royal Observatory in London, Such was beyond the ability of 17th-century science. In 1675, King Charles II established the Royal Observatory at Greenwich to compile the necessary knowledge. In 1714, the British Parliament offered an enormous reward for a practical method of determining longitude at sea. Europe's brightest astronomers and mathematicians worked for decades compiling a star catalogue designing an instrument to gauge the moon's angle, working out the mathematics of the lunar orbit, and publishing annual tables of celestial positions. white wigged gentlemen holding a clock
0: below a silhouette of interlocking gears fills the sky.
2: While the lunar method captivated the scientists, a self-taught English clockmaker, John Harrison, decided that an accurate mechanical clock was the way to tell time at sea. Pocket watches of the era gained or lost 15 minutes a day. The clock Harrison envisioned could deviate by only two seconds. Harrison also labored for decades, using materials in new ways, inventing mechanisms to overcome the effects of friction, temperature, and humidity. 18th century clocks. His timepieces worked at sea. Marine chronometers. Marine clocks, called chronometers, eventually became commonplace, solving the longitude problem. The lunar technique became obsolete, but many of the tools developed in its time are still used. Having the tools can mean the difference between life and death.
0: Title, Patients Camp in the Weddell Sea, near Antarctica,
1: on the horizon, an Antarctic ice panorama. We settled on the biggest ice flow in the vicinity and named it Patience Camp. Shackleton had concluded that the best thing would be to mark time and trust to the northward drift of the ice. Map of Antarctica, pinpricks of light plot a route. After five months of drifting, the sea reached us. Shackleton contemplated Elephant Island as a landing place. The next three days were terribly anxious ones, for my sights of the sun were merely glimpses between icebergs on a misty day. Had my calculations been wrong, 28 men would have sailed out to practically certain death.
2: Survival at sea depends upon accurate navigation. Fortunately, Shackleton had the necessary tools. What does a navigator require? A compass won't help you figure out where you are, but is needed to steer a course. An accurate chronometer will tell you the time. Special books tabulate the positions of the sun, moon, planets and navigational stars minute by minute through the year. A sextant measures angles of celestial objects above the horizon. While the navigator looks at the horizon, mirrors bring the observed body into view. A modern yacht
0: at sea on the horizon. Next, a gentleman in white using a sextant, aiming it at a ball
2: of light to the left, the sun. A navigator often shoots the sun at noontime. He adjusts the sextant's arm, bringing the solar image down to the horizon. Rocking the sextant moves the sun in an arc. When the sun touches the horizon at the bottom of its arc, the sighting is complete. The sun's altitude in the sky can be read off the scale
0: the glow of an orange and red sunset on the
2: horizon. After the sun has set, a navigator can observe bright stars and planets during twilight while the horizon is still visible. Let's make some early evening sightings and fix our position. A vertical altitude scale, or grid, is projected. The star Vega is 45 degrees up extends to a dot of light halfway up from the horizon. Now, Vega, at this moment, is 45 degrees up from many places on Earth. We could be anywhere on a huge circle. Since we have some idea where we are, we can eliminate almost all of the circle. Consulting our nautical almanac and site production tables and correcting for such effects as atmospheric refraction, we plot the tiny remainder of the circle as a straight line on our chart. We are somewhere on that line. Another
0: altitude scale to the left.
2: Another sighting, this time Saturn. We plot another line of position. We are somewhere on both lines, so we must be where they cross.
0: A celestial map, images of men and animals crisscross star points in the sky.
2: A clear sky gives us plenty of navigational objects from which to choose that the sky isn't always clear.
0: Title, Elephant Island, April 24th, 1916. Still images of the Endurance
1: crew. We knew that no living person would dream that we were stranded on Elephant Island. I had worked out routes and distances to the various points to which we might make boat journeys for help. Five of us were chosen. We prepared the biggest lifeboat. Antarctic map and travel path noted with points of light. What do you think about Cape Horn, Shackleton asked. It's nearest. We can never reach it, I replied. The westerly gales would blow us away. With luck, we might fetch the Falkland Islands. I'm afraid we shall have to make for South Georgia Island, he said. A graphic on the deck of the lifeboat James Carroll. In the night, we steered by the feel of the wind and by observing the angle at which the little pennant blew. Towering waves, heavy seas, a small ship is tossed in choppy water. On the rare occasions when I got an observation of the sun, I had to kneel with two men holding me to prevent the violent motion of the boat heaving me overboard. Shackleton would take the time by the chronometer, the sole survivor in working order of 24 chronometers. The sun is behind a fog directly before us. The lifeboat sails toward it from the left. On the 13th day, we were getting nearer to our destination. If we made the tragic mistake of passing it, We could never retrace our way. It was essential to get observations. But the morning was foggy. And if you can't see the horizon, it's impossible to measure the altitude of the sun. Now, the nearer your eye is to the surface of the sea, the nearer is the horizon. So I knelt in the bottom of the boat and succeeded in taking a rough observation. Two were necessary, however, to fix your position and at noon the fog was hovering between the sun and ourselves so that all I could see was a dim blur. I measured to the centre of this ten times, using the average as the sun's altitude. A path is plotted on the Antarctic map.
0: Photographic images now of the rescue of the crew and a whaling station.
2: After a thousand-mile voyage across the stormiest ocean on Earth, the lifeboat arrived safely at South Georgia Island. The party remaining behind on Elephant Island was eventually rescued. Everyone survived.
0: Photos of a modern ship's bridge and its navigational equipment. Today's
2: navigator fears mainly the loss of electrical power. Since the 1930s, new technology has first supplemented and then replaced traditional methods red and white radio tower at the left. At right, radar dishes, light pulsing from each. First came Earth-based systems. Navigators could triangulate on Loran transmissions from the coast or detect the coast using radar aboard ship. Later came orbiting navigational satellites such as NavSat. At the left, a satellite glides above us. When navsets were above the horizon, they could serve as artificial navigational stars.
0: An array of satellites orbit an image of Earth.
2: Steering by the stars continues, but today a whole constellation of artificial stars adorns the heavens. 24 global positioning satellites make navigation automatic. They transmit directly into a handheld receiver whose computer does all the work, proclaiming one's position to an accuracy of a few feet.
0: Photos of handheld GPS receivers like television remote control units.
2: A GPS receiver needs signals from three satellites. More satellites will increase the accuracy. The satellites transmit their current position and the current time. The signals leave the satellites at the speed of light. When a receiver gets a signal a fraction of a second later, it calculates how far away that satellite must be. The receiver knows it is somewhere on a vast sphere around the satellite. Signals are received from a second satellite and a third. Where all the spheres meet, there is the receiver. Several
0: car dashboard GPS receivers are pictured.
2: Today, machines can navigate. Some rental cars offer built-in GPS receivers, and GPS receivers for laptop computers can help even tourists find their way.
0: The interior of the tourist's car, once again. We can peer through the front windshield at the nation's Capitol building and the approach to the Smithsonian. Now where do we park?
1: Ah, was that a parking garage I saw back on Pennsylvania Avenue?
0: The image of the tourists fades, replaced by a moonlit ocean panorama with a seacoast town on the horizon lights twinkling. A jet soars overhead from right to left.
2: There are more efficient ways to cross an ocean than under sail in an open boat. And more advanced techniques for finding the way than using the sky. Fortunately, there remains room in our world for inefficiency. Scene fades, revealing star-filled skies. So long as the beauty of a starry sky and the breadth of an open ocean can captivate a human heart, there will be those who steer by the stars. Faint lettering appears
0: in the sky, a quote by John Maysfield. I must down to
1: the seas again. To the lonely sea and sky And all I ask is a tall ship And a star to steer her by
0: The quote fades and titles appear Narrated by Sir Alec Guinness Produced by Skyscan Incorporated And the National Air and Space Museum Music composed by Mark Mercury Art by Pat Morrissey Credits for two dozen organizations follow. And a star to steer her by is made possible through the generous support of Trimble, with additional support from Case Corporation and Seiko Epson Corporation. The audio description of this Einstein Planetarium presentation was written and voiced by Joel Snyder.